Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. Matthew, the second chapter, verses 1 through 12. This is the story of the coming of the three kings, of the Magi. And it is the gospel that the church uses for the Feast of the Epiphany. I think there's a few things that uh, we might want to reflect upon before we enter into the text itself. One of them is that the Feast of the Epiphany is the Feast of the Manifestation of the Lord. Um, But in a way, and it's the one that is really kind of uh, taken from the Eastern Church, um, it is their major celebration of Christmas is on the Epiphany. Um, The Western Church, our church, usually celebrates, celebrates Christmas on the 25th of December, the birth of the Lord. But in both cases, these are celebrations of the manifestation of the Lord. The actual incarnation of Jesus takes place on the 25th of March at the Feast of the Annunciation, when Mary conceives the child by the power of the Holy Spirit and then carries her within him, him within her for, um, for the next nine months until he is manifest to the world. To the first manifestation, the 25th of December, our Christmas Day, the manifestation is, we know, to the shepherds. It is therefore to the poor of Israel, to what we call the Anawim. It is, it is the manifestation, therefore, to the chosen people, but the ones who have remained faithful. And it was the poor of Israel who, during the times of the Babylonian exile, had remained faithful and the ones that returned to Jerusalem when they were given permission to by the, by the kings of the Persians and the Medes, Cyrus and Darius. And so they are kind of heralded in the Old Testament as the bearers of faithfulness and as the bearers, therefore, of the covenant. To them first, the coming of the Messiah is manifest, therefore, to the shepherds who were the poorest of the poor in Israel. The second manifestation is to the Gentiles, and that is the feast that we celebrate in the Feast of Epiphany. And so that what we have then is the second manifestation of the Lord. We have the Feast of the Incarnation, which is the Annunciation, the Feast of the First Manifestation, which is Christmas, the Manifestation to the Shepherds, and the Second Manifestation to the Gentiles, which is what today's Gospel is all about. There's another reflection that we might want to think about, too, because certainly we run into all sorts of problems, historical problems. Um, with the idea of the three of the three wise men from the east, um, they we call them three kings because of the prophecies of Isaiah that says the kings shall come from afar and so forth. But basically, we find that it would be very difficult to apply very rigid and very strict um, historical critical methods to the story of the Magi. And it would be very difficult for us to come up with, therefore, to say within the context of the historicity of the Gospels that this is a verbatim account of what happened. 
Um, we don't know what happened. And as some of the commentaries will say, for instance, that, uh, that this story is symbolic and much of its detail is undeniable, but it is equally undeniable that the gospel traditions have not in principle been concocted out of thin air. So the, the, uh, the scholarly um, exegetes and the, and the scholarly commentators on the Gospels um, acknowledge there is a deep quality of symbolic reality within the story of the Three Magi, um, and, but that we cannot simply dismiss it as legend um, since the Gospels never really concoct anything out of thin air. There's always some kind of foundation, some kind of basis to it. And in Matthew's Gospel now, especially, we encounter something, something very Jewish, something very Hebrew. There is a, mo a mode, a form of commentating on the scriptures in Judaism that is called the Midrash, or the Mishadshim. And that the Midrash is an exegesis, it is an interpretation of the scriptures. But it is an interpretation which takes great liberty in, uh, in exploring the possibilities of what the text might mean, the possibilities of what each letter of the text might mean. And that we have therefore a whole body of work called the Midrashim, which is the reflections of Jewish exegetes and Jewish interpreters of the scriptures throughout the entire use of the Hebrew Bible. And so basically then what we encounter here in Matthew is probably Midrash. It's probably some kind of interpretation of an actual event um, that brings to the fore um, the desire to make very clear what the intention is of the event that did take place. And so we can't say, well, this is just a legend, and we can't say that it never happened. At the other hand, the other hand, we can say that Matthew may have taken great liberty in interpreting what happened in order that he might make more clear that which he wanted to say, that truth about the Messiah which he wanted to convey to the people to whom he proclaimed the gospel. And so the story, the gospel then begins. After Jesus had been born in Bethlehem of Judea during the reign of King Herod, some wise men came to Jerusalem from the east. Where is the infant king of the Jews, they asked. We saw his star as it rose and have come to him to do homage. So basically then, we have the structure of the story at this point. Who were the three wise men from the East? In using the word magi, they, they, they skirt a, uh, an, another word, magoi, which means magician. But they're not talking about the three magicians from the East. They're talking about the three men from the East, or they're talking about the men from the East. Um, for it doesn't tell us there's only three, it tells us that there's some wise men, that these are probably identifiable within the culture that Matthew is writing in as the Zoroastrian priests from Persia. And the reason being is that they were famous for being, for being astrologers. And if there was some kind of heavenly divine portent in the heavens, they would be the ones who would have seen it, and they would have been the ones who would have discerned it. 
And so Matthew wants us to know that there was some kind of divine portent surrounding the birth of his son, the birth of, of, of the Son of God, that was, that was perceived by those who were not of the Hebrew tradition, and that perceived in such a powerful way that they came in some way to find the cause, and the cause they presumed was the birth of the new king of the Jews. And so here then we have the setup of the Magi from the East. It's interesting. When you go back and you think about this, this story about the three wise men, um, we, we think in terms the journey by camel from Persia, where the Zoroastrians were embedded and where they practiced uh, their sort of monotheistic religion, to Bethlehem or to Jerusalem would have been almost a two-year journey. And so it means that there is a great commitment and a great desire on the part of those who have been seeing the portent, of those who have in some way, shape, or form perceived that something dramatic now has happened in the tiny kingdom of Israel. And so they come and they naturally, they seek out the king, who is Herod. And uh, they asked him, they said, where is the infant king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and have come to do him homage. Um, and so they feel like if there is a divine portent announcing the coming of a great king of Israel, the infant king of the Jews. And uh, it's interesting too, just as an aside, that when Herod does respond and kills the children of Bethlehem, the issue is everyone two years and under, every boy child, male child, two years and under is to be killed, indicating once again an affirmation of the two-year journey of the Magi. For when they have first seen the portent until they arrive in Jerusalem would have been about two years. And so Herod, being aware of that, then sets the limits on who he is searching for when he sends his soldiers to Bethlehem to slaughter the children. But Herod then, <clears throat> the, the wise men are unaware of the pettiness and of Herod. Herod is a wicked man, a man who has killed his own sons because he was afraid that they would challenge his authority. And so now he says in his, in his uh, deceptive sort of way, um, well, tell me, tell me then, um, when, when, you, when you find the child, and, uh, and so that I can, can go and, uh, and pay him homage myself. And, um, and Herod summoned the wise men to see him privately, and he asked them the exact date on which a star had appeared, and then sent them on to Bethlehem. Um, and so it is, once again, an affirmation of a long journey, of the journey, of the time frame of a journey it would take to go from Persia to Jerusalem. But at any rate, once Herod had heard this story, he was perturbed, and with him the whole of Jerusalem. In other words, the power structure of Jerusalem that depended upon Herod um, to sustain their privileged positions within society. 
We certainly know that there are many in the political world of our own day who will do anything to uh, hang on to their positions and hang on to their power um, at any cost. And uh, we know this is not, not an unusual human characteristic. And it was no different in ancient Israel. For certainly the Sadducees and the Pharisees did not want to lose their privileged position within society and their privileged relationship, especially the Sadducees with the Roman occupiers, of whom, of course, Herod was simply a puppet. But Herod then, and this is interesting, Herod knew that a newborn king of the Jews had been contained in prophecy. Herod knew that the Messiah, the new king of Israel, was anticipated and expected. Herod probably was aware of the fact that the, uh, that the scholars of, at, of the Essene scholars of Qumran were anticipating, anticipating at the coming of the Messiah very soon, very quickly and that he was aware that if this were to happen, if the day of the Lord were coming, then it would, he would no longer enjoy his privilege, his power, his position, and so forth. And so he, he is disturbed and he is upset. You know, <laughs> stop and think about it. What if, what if someone were to come to, to one of us and say, well, you know, the, the, the Lord is coming tomorrow, it's over. Um, you know, hopefully we would be find joy in that. But how many people would do anything they could to prevent it from happening because they didn't want to give up what they already have, what they're already used to? They're going to have to give it up in death anyway. But as Herod is going to have to give it up in death anyway. But that's not the way that people think. And that's not the way that, that people deal with their lives. We, we, we cling to what we know. We can't cling to what is familiar. We may dream about alternatives, but most, most would, would never pursue anything that would radically change their way of life and uh, the circumstances of their existence. Even if they are in some ways difficult at times, you would not choose something radically different, something radically unknown. You might make a change, but to make a change for the totally unknown, very difficult for people to do. And here, Herod has no intention of doing that. And so he calls the chief priests and the, together and he asks them, where is this supposed to happen? The prophecies, we know the prophecies say it is going to happen. Where did the prophets say it's going to happen? And so what happens then is the chief priests and the scribes of the people um, use the prophecies of Micah and say at Bethlehem and Judea, for this is what the prophet wrote, and you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. And so the chief priests and the scribes offered to Herod, this will take place in Bethlehem because this is what the prophet Micah has foretold. 
So it is then that Herod summons the Magi and tells them, you know, find this child. They are the ones with the clue. They are the ones who have the capacity. Herod has recognized this. They are the ones who have the capacity to find the child, for they've traveled now from Persia to, to Jerusalem, knowing that they're close to what they're looking for. And so he says, go and find out all about this child. And when you have found out, let me know that I may go and do him homage. Herod is a liar and a schemer and a conniver. Let me that I may go and do him homage. Well, we know what happened when he did find out from the chief priests and the scribes where the Messiah was to be born. And so having listened to the king had to say, they set out. And there in front of them was the star. And it went forward and halted over the place where the child was. The sight of the star filled them with delight. And getting into the, and going into the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary. And falling to their knees, they did him homage. And so they have now come to the end of their quest. They recognize, they recognize the... Um, the, the, the child whom they have been seeking for the last two years. And so they fall down, and this translation that I'm using says, did him homage. The translation, the more authentic one probably says, and they worshiped him. Because it is Matthew's intent to be, let it be known throughout his gospel that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is the Son of God, the child of God. And that, uh, that we worship gods and we pay homage, therefore, to, to those who have great positions of power um, and benevolence. But we worship the living God. And so it says in Matthew's gospel that they might worship him. And so Matthew is affirming now the recognition not only of the Messiah, but that the Messiah is a divine being, that the Messiah is in fact the Son of God, the Messiah is in fact God. And then it says, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. These were normal gifts to royalty, but the reason, but the three gifts have led us to talk about the three wise men. There is no designation of numbers in the gospel itself, but in the interpretation and the celebration of the gospel in subsequent time and subsequent years, <clears throat> The three gifts was assigned each to one of the travelers. And so we come up with the three kings. But, it says, they were warned in a dream. And once again, the theme, the thematic of dreams, which are very strong in the Old Testament, is carried over into Matthew's Gospel, both in the Annunciation to Joseph and now into the warning to the Magi about the... Uh, about the the treacherousness of Herod, and so they would, and if and and not to go back to Herod, and so they returned to their own country by a different way. So now, what has happened? We know that at the birth in Bethlehem, as I said at the very beginning, the Messiah was manifest to the Anawim, to the poor of Israel. Now in the Feast of the Epiphany, he is manifested to the Gentiles, who in fact have been willing to accept the mystery of the coming of the Messiah when his own did not. 
And, and I think that this is something we might want to explore a little bit in the phenomenon of the gift of faith to many people. For we find that even today and now, the gift of faith has been given to over a billion people. We know that. We're aware of that. And yet at the same time, how many do not want the Lord to interfere with their daily lives, do not want the Lord to interfere with the cultural experiences that they have of the time and the places in which they live. We have but to look at many who bear the name of Catholic today but want nothing to do, nothing to do with the truth of the Catholic faith. They want to create it for themselves because they are more comfortable that way. They are much more comfortable um, with, the, uh, with creating their own understanding of the Christ and their own personal grasp of what it means to be a believer. They never surrender. And I think that this is one of the, this is one of the great issues of the modern church, the great issues of the church throughout the ages, the great issue here in Jerusalem in the first century. They have never surrendered to revelation. They have never surrendered to the covenant. They have seen the covenant <clears throat> in a way as some kind of political or social commodity that their object is in some way to control it. To control it either through outward political structures or to control it interiorly within themselves. And we find that too as very extant in the modern church and rampant in the modern church. Um, I, I, I recall a kind of a, a, a defiant line one time about, I don't care about your church with the big C. In other words, we locally will determine the faith and we locally will come to understand and to believe whatever it is we want to believe and that we do not accept in any way, shape, or form a revelation that comes to us from outside of ourselves. It is that religion in some way, shape, or form becomes a consumer quantity. I will take it into myself in so far as it is what I want it to be. I will reject that part of it which I do not want it to be. And, and, and you know, it's, there's really a, a great sadness in that because people can't grow when they do that. Part of the task <clears throat> of the Christian and part of the task of any whole human being is a desire and a need to move outside of the self and beyond the self constantly in a way, therefore, of growing in our depth of understanding and in our, in, our, in our humility and in our willingness to surrender to the realities that surround us, provided us by the living God. And to say, I will not change, to say, I will not grow, to say, I will not in any way, shape, or form open myself to something other than what I have constructed myself is to deny Christ. It is to deny the faith. It is, as a matter of fact, turn totally away from religion, totally away from revelation, totally away from the living God. For the living God cannot be contained within the narrowness of the human person. 
And it is for that reason that the human person must be open and move out beyond themselves if they are in any way, shape, or form to ever discover that encounter with God. You know, we find that as a normal human characteristic. We find it, for instance, in, in human love. You cannot love the other by consuming them. You love the other by going out of yourself for them. And it is, it is a, a very strong characteristic of human love that the well-being of the other becomes more important to you than your own. That certainly, and it was, it's, it's interesting because in the contrast that we find even in some of the classic literature and so forth, this becomes clear. It's a very, very fundamental, strong point of, of Dostoevsky. And it's something totally rejected by Friedrich Nietzsche and who then creates a sense kind of of hopelessness and self-destruction as kind of the goal of the human person. Whereas Dostoevsky sees that the generosity of the human person, the giving away of the self for the sake of another, is where the fullness, where humanity actually encounters the depths of itself. Well, this is also true, of course, in sacred scripture, and it's true in our experience of life. Try to be simply a consumer of the other person, and you end up in the shipwrecks of divorce and alienation and uh, all of those things. We have but to watch um, many of the, of the significant and important high-profile celebrities in our world who are so accustomed, so accustomed, to uh, being adulated and being able to call their own shots, find it impossible to stay married to, the, to a single person. Because they finally, once you have consumed everything of the other person, there's nothing left for you to have. And since you yourself have not grown by that process because you have taken and not given, then in fact, you, you have ended the relationship and you have ended the whole purpose of the relationship. I think that this is something that we have to deal with too because we see it, for instance, in Herod and in the old Jerusalem that was perturbed, that it was that the covenant was for their good. They did not live for it. They did not live to know and to love the living God. They did not know to give of themselves and to move outside of themselves into the mystery of the divine. They wanted to domesticate the divine. They wanted to, to in some way, shape, or form, um, bring the divine into conformity with their own human nature. This is exactly what Herod did. And this is exactly what we find surrounded within the contemporary church, but in the church of every age. And so it is one of the great temptations of belief to consume rather than to give, to, to inhale rather than to step out into the life of mystery in the hands of the living God with trust and confidence that he will lead us safely into the fullness of our human personhood and into the kingdom of heaven. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.